So this is the encouragement to endure. Now comes the warning. Welcome to the Bible. You can never have encouragement without a warning. Verse 14, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, for without it no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of grace of God, and no one will be like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble. And through him many become defiled. And see to it that no one becomes an immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no opportunity for repentance, although he sought the blessing with tears. For you have not come to something that can be touched, or to a burning fire and darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, and the blasted trumpet and a voice uttering words, such as those who were heard begged to hear no more, for they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. In fact, the scene was so terrifying that Moses said, I shudder with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the assembly, um, heavenly, excuse me, and the congregation of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness, and who have been made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of something better than Abel's does. So here's what he calls you to. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, for without it no one will see the Lord. Two things you're to pursue. First is peace with everyone. Now notice it doesn't say that no one who's perfectly at peace and completely holy will see the Lord. It says pursue. Why peace? Why is peace so important? One would think, why not love? Why not joy, since that's what he just got done talking about? But the idea is peace. Because this is the very message that the angels gave to earth when the angels announced Jesus' birth. Peace to all men. It doesn't say peace and goodwill to all humans. It says to all men who respond to the Lord. And the idea is the ultimate goal of God was to come and make peace between you and Him. And that peace is made possible because He loves us. And that peace enables us to experience joy and hope. But it's the peace that He came to accomplish. And then ultimately, as we have peace with Him, then we will have peace with each other. And so this is the reality. If you truly understand that Christ is better than all other things, and you focus on Him, and you pursue Him, then you will begin to have peace between you and God because you're surrendering to Him over and over and over again. The more your Father... Look, the more you correctly and lovingly respond to your parents' discipline, the better the relationship you have with them. Okay? Now, I'm not speaking as someone who like accomplished that. All right? But the better you respond to your parents' discipline, their love, their instruction, the better relationship you'll have with them. Therefore, 
the better you respond to God's discipline. The more you pursue Him, the more you remember what He's capable of, the more you remember that He's better, the more you surrender, the more you depend on Him, the more you focus on Him, then the more at peace you'll be with Him. And then when He, then the more love and joy you'll experience, which then means that should be something that you should be doing in other people's lives. Because children act like their parents. And if you're spending time with your father, then you should be acting like him. This is why when you do really bad things, your mom and your dad looks to the other one and says, your child just did this. And what they meant was, it's the DNA from your family and your personality and character that led to them because no child of mine would do that. It's exactly what God said to Moses at Mount Sinai. The, your people that you led out of Egypt are down there sinning. You're like, wait a minute. One chapter ago, you said that these are your people, God, and you led them out. Children act like their parents. And this is the point that John makes. John, Jesus even looks at the disciples and says, you don't recognize me or follow me because your father is the devil. Wow. And so here's the reality. If you really truly are pursuing Christ, then you should pursue peace with all people. And the only way that you can pursue peace is by loving them like your Heavenly Father loves you and by forgiving them like your Heavenly Father forgives you. And then to be holy. And holy is the way that you relate to them. Holiness is separateness from all things that are not godly. And then one of the greatest ways that we make ourselves holy is through behavior, righteousness. There's lots of ways you can be separate from other things, the way that you dress, the way that you cut your hair, the way that you talk, the way that you act, memberships at clubs, skin color. Those are all ways that we can be separate from. But the Bible calls us to be separate in the way that we reflect God's character. And that's righteous acts and righteous words. And so he says this, if he came and Christ loved and pursued peace with all people in deeds and words, then that's how you conduct yourself with other people. And here's the result. Notice he doesn't say, now you should do this or you will be punished. He says, this is what you will pursue because you love Christ who is so better than other things. The more you fall in love with Christ, which can only happen because you better understand how He's better than all things, then the more that you'll just naturally pursue peace and holiness because children always act like their parents. Does that make sense? Because no one can see God without these two things. Because if you're not pursuing these, then the scary thing is he might say, I never knew you. Now remember, he didn't say who are perfect at this, but who pursue, who pursue, that this matters. And that's the warning. Now here's the beauty of the Bible. We typically, when it comes to Bible studies, where God says, live at peace with everyone and love and do not involve in sexual morality and that kind of stuff. 
And we want to make those all behavioralistic commands, like stop doing that and start doing this. And in some ways they are. Don't get me wrong. They're all imperatives. They're commands. God is saying don't, 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 and do, do, do. But we need to look at them less as get your act together and start doing this and more of that this is what children of a Heavenly Father do and do not do. And start looking as a litmus test. If you want to know the pH balance of your swimming pool, you stick a strip in there and you pull it out and it tells you what it is. And so when he goes on and tells you, husbands do this, wives do this, you should do this, abstain from that. And you look at your life and you're like, I have a lot of that. Then the, the lesson, the Sunday school lesson is not, then start doing more of it and stop doing less of this. The lesson is, man, I need to get back into my relationship with God. I need to start reading the Word more. I need to start praying more. Because obviously, if the fruit I'm producing is not matching the test that God has presented, then I'm not planted in the right soil and the right foundation. And the goal is not to start cranking out good fruit as I'm landing on top of concrete. That's what we usually try to do. The goal is to say, if I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that, and I should be doing this and I'm not, then get back into the church. Get back into a small group. Get back into the Word of God. Get back into prayer. Try to fall in love. Pursue the Word more and more so you fall in love with God more so that you hear Him better. I'm already in a life group. Well, maybe you're not hearing what He's saying because you're not in love with Him enough. And the goal is then to go back to the Word of God. Go back to Christ's. Go back to resting. Go back to immersing yourself in Him so that several months later, a year later, when you look at it, you can say, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And the, it is a command. Those are what you should be doing. And those are the things what you should not be doing. But the Sunday school lesson is not start doing them. The Sunday school lesson is get back in the Word. Read it. If you don't understand it, find somebody who does and let them come and slide on your side and explain to you so that you fall in love with Jesus. And the more you fall in love with Him, the more you pursue Him, then the Word of God is your greater, best counselor. And then you test yourself again. You test yourself again. Now, once again, I'm not trying to make this sound really easy. I'm not trying to say, if you just do this, because we all know how hard it is to get in the Word of God. We all know how hard it is to be in disciplined prayer. And even if we do it, then we fall. We all know that. I'm just trying to say, I think subconsciously, we spend too much time trying to do it in our own works than trying to surrender to Christ. Does that make sense? I'm not saying this will make it as easy. I'm just saying, if you keep doing the way that you've used to, you feel doomed. If you do it the way that the Bible is teaching you, there's hope. It's not going to be easy and a magic wand, but there's hope because you'll begin to see fruit. And then even if you fall off the wagon, you'll remember the fruit that you had when you were doing it, which is encouragement to get back on the wagon. But if you never have been on the wagon, because you're always trying to do it in your own works and effort, there's not much of an encouragement to keep persevering the faith. And I think this is why a lot of people chalk Christianity after a while. Because they're trying to produce fruit while their roots were in concrete, rather than good, rich soil. And that's the reality here. I'm not saying that this is easy. I'm just saying that this is the better path. This is the better path. 
And we need to be reminded of this. Because no matter how much I know this intellectually, my sinful and human default is to constantly go back to, if at first you fail, then try, try, try again. And I need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. Because if you're like me, my curse is I psychoanalyze everything. And so then even when I'm succeeding in this, I start patting myself on the back, oh, I'm doing good. And then I'm like, oh, I'm no, I know this is my works and it's all about me. Da, 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 da. And then it gets all twisted. Okay? It gets all twisted. But that's the goal. That's the pursuit. So, in verse 15, he gives them three warnings. The first two are in verse 15, and the third one is in verses 16 through 17. The first warning is that the author says to not fall short of the grace of God. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no one be like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble, and through him many become defiled. So here's the first warning. Do not become... Sorry. The first is not to fall short of the grace of God. Now, isn't that interesting? does not say, do not fall short of your endurance. Do not fall short of your works. Do not fall short of your effort. Do not fall short of the grace of God. For all have sinned and fallen short. Because that's your own works. But if you remember that it's all about that not by works but by faith in the grace of God, then you will not fall short. The wilderness generation experienced the grace of God, but they stayed focused on themselves, and they fell short of the promised land. They never entered. The next generation that came under Joshua, they experienced the grace of God too. But every single time God called them to do something, they said, we believe that you can do it, God. And they just surrendered. And the ultimate example is walking around the wall of Jericho. That was not their effort. That was not their works. It was a waste of time. But it was the grace and power of God that crashed the walls. And they entered into the promised land. Do not fall short of the grace of God which means staying focused on the gospel presentation and not try, try, try again. The second warning is not to become a bitter root that causes problems. Sometimes I can be a pessimist. I like to not think of myself as a pessimist because I have hope. I like to think of myself as a realist. Um, Now there's a fine line between that. I'm not a pessimist without hope. And that's, what's, that's the only thing that saves me. Because the only reason I have hope is because of Christ. Um, but I can tend to default into complaining. And then that things are not going to work out well. And I can totally relate to that. And his warning is this. When suffering and trials comes into your life, our natural tendency is to complain. Our natural tendency is to complain. We complain about our boss. We complain about how our church is doing things and it shouldn't be doing it that way. And if I was in charge, it would be better. We complain about the suffering in our life. We complain about this and that and that. 
And what happens is that complaining, we go to other people. And though there's sometimes nothing wrong with venting, sometimes you need to vent, and sometimes that's what a friend is for. But when you never stop venting, it brings them down. And it brings them into a bitterness. They may have not felt the same way towards your boss until after you reminded them so many times of all those things. And then you start becoming bitter. And then you don't help make things progress in any kind of way. You're not producing fruit in any kind of way. If you want a great example of that, the wilderness generation. Surprise, surprise, surprise. It started off with just some complaining. We're in the desert. We're going to die. We don't have food. This isn't fair. And eventually over time, if you study numbers in Exodus, it says that the mixed multitude grumbled. Well, the mixed multitude is, I don't know if you realize that, but a lot of Egyptians left Egypt with the Jews. A lot of Egyptians did get the ten plagues and said, oh my gosh, this God is better. And they left. But they were also the source of the the grumbling and the complaining. Because they did not know the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Judah, like Israel did. And so they didn't know that God used perseverance and long-suffering and trials to bring blessings in the promised land, like what we talked about in chapter 11 last week. They wanted instant gratification. And their gods failed to give it to them, so they switched to the new and brand new latest thing on the market. And that was a god who brought ten amazing plagues in a very Hollywood showmanship kind of way. And when they didn't get that instant gratification now in the wilderness, and thing wasn't hunky-dory, like they thought was being advertised to them in ten plagues, they began to complain. Because they didn't realize that those are events that God uses to lead to processes that last for a long time. Just like birth is an amazing event, but it leads to a long process of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? And so, (laughs) the reality is this, and great joys, don't get me wrong. (laughs) And so they begin to complain. But because they never stop complaining, eventually, if you learn, look, it spreads into then Israel complained and grumbled. Because they stopped remembering who God was and focused only on the immediate complaining that was happening right now, which focused on the storm and not on the pillar of fire that was right in front of them. And then eventually it turned into bitterness. And then eventually it turned into, you know what? Life before God was actually better. And this God is a sick, twisted God that only saved us so he could kill us right here and right now. Let's go find a better God who will take us back to Egypt. In other words of, life before Jesus Christ was way better. Let's find somebody who can help me put the old man back on permanently. And they became a bitter root. So the warning is, don't let the trials produce complaining. Let the trials ask the question, what is God going to teach me in this? And if I tend to complain, 
Who can I surround myself with as a great cloud of witness that can remind me not to complain? That can help me see God in that? The third warning. See to it that no one belongs, becomes an immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So notice how they're progressing. Just don't fall short. Now don't complain. And now don't become immoral and godless like Esau. Esau experienced the grace of God because he came from the patriarch family. He saw God at work. And yet he said, you know what? Instant gratification of having pleasure and comfort in food right now is way better than any kind of future blessing I could ever have. I want my fast food remote control instant gratification drive through a restaurant meal right now. Forget the long suffering. Genesis says he despised his birthright. He despised it. And that's the warning. You can become so works-oriented and so focused on the suffering and trials that it leads you to bitterness that eventually you'll begin to despise the Christianity in your life that's actually making your life more miserable. It's making it harder. Or maybe it's not giving you the instant gratification that you're hoping for. Because either the gospel that was sold to you was not totally accurate, or you were self-centered that you didn't hear the gospel correctly when it was presented to you. And then you become godless. And you sell your birthright. You throw it away. You turn away, and you cannot come back. Now notice he keeps that theme on. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, and he found no opportunity for repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. Same idea. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, taste the heavenly gift, experience the grace of God, who reject Jesus to come back to repentance. Once he rejected it, no matter how much he cried and begged, the answer was, there's nothing left for you. There's nothing left for you. You rejected the blessing. There's no blessing 2.0. There's nothing left for you. And so this is the progression. It can start with just your works. And then it ends up in complaining and bitterness. And it becomes contagious to everybody else. And then everybody around you is doing the same thing. And the next thing you know, you say, I want instant gratification. I want a life that's more comfortable. And this Christian is not offering it to me. And you walk away. And you miss the birthright. That's the warning. And I know that none of us think like, nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to stop being a Christian. And by Christian, I mean like in the church. I don't mean lose your salvation. Believe me, I'm not going there. Hopefully we've had enough conversations with all these warnings. You know, I'm never saying that. And if you have that salvation, you are sealed. And the testimony of the Spirit and life and experiences are encouraging you then you have nothing to fear. But what we need to be is an encouragement to the other people in our church who may not be quite there yet. Because we don't want them to be a better root. And we don't want them to chuck the gospel and walk away. And so I think that's the other thing we need to remember. So don't be like, check, check, that's, that's not me. 
this warning doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you because it applies to the people that you love and the church that might be in that area. For you have not come. Now here's the beauty. For you have not come to something that can be touched, to a burning fire and darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and the blast of a trumpet and a voice and uttering words such as those who heard and begged and hear no more. Listen, when Israel came to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, and we've already talked about this, the entire mountain was completely consumed in fire and lightning and smoke. And the mountain was constantly shaking 24-7 for over 40 days at least. I don't know how much more beyond that it went. The Bible doesn't tell us. A great earthquake. And God said, don't come near the mountain. Don't touch it. You have responded with God as if He's a scary God who wants to kill you. So don't you dare come close to this mountain. It's going to kill you. It's your fear that will kill you. Not the fact that God is untrustworthy and not good. Don't you dare come to that. And because they were sinners, and because they had no sacrifice that could truly perfect them, and because they did not have Christ and the Holy Spirit living inside of them, the God that they saw was a scary, untouchable, unapproachable God. Though they could come into His presence, and though God would invite them deeper and deeper and deeper through the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and, and that kind of stuff, there's still this sense that ultimately in the end, He's still this great pillar of fire with lightning and judgment and fear. He was unapproachable. That's what they experienced. Now, that doesn't change the fact that God, God was still good. God was still gracious. God was still forgiving. God was still love. God was still long-suffering. In fact, that's the exact same thing that Moses says in the next chapter. Because I know that you are a long-suffering, compassionate, merciful God. But the reality, it wasn't that God wasn't good and God wasn't trustworthy and God was not forgiving that they could not approach Him. It was because they were sinners and there was no sacrifice. And so all they could experience was the judgment, the distance, the fire of God. And this is what He says, But for you, you have not come to something that cannot be touched, that cannot be approached, that you cannot intimately step into the presence of and have a face-to-face conversation. To a burning fire and darkness and gloom, all scary things of nature. And the blast of a trumpet that makes your ears hurt and fall to the ground in fear and say, I am not worthy. A voice uttering words that those who have heard beg to hear no more, for they could not bear what was commanded. Because even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stone. In fact, the scene was so terrifying that even Moses, who was able to get closer to God, a Moses who was able to speak to God face to face, a Moses who was able to be changed physically by God and experience His intimacy and firsthand say, you are a compassionate, merciful God, even said, I am terrified and tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the name of Jerusalem. A Mount Moriah in the middle of Jerusalem is where they built the temple. The spiritual, heavenly version of that, where God literally dwelt, was Mount Zion. So Moriah is where the physical stone gold temple sat. And Mount Zion was the 
heavenly counterpart in the spiritual realm. It sat there too, because the idea of the pillar of fire was that Mount Zion in heaven and Mount Moriah on earth came together in space, time, and matter because of the repetitive animal sacrifices. And the only thing that allowed Zion and earthly temple to be joined on a superficial pillar of fire level was repetitive animal sacrifices. But we can come to the Mount Zion, the heavenly sanctuary, the city of the living God, not the city of David that was on earth and eventually got destroyed by the Romans, but the city of the living, eternal God that will never get destroyed, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, not angels carved on fabric and embroidered on top of a box, but real, living, breathing angels, to the assembly, the congregation of the firstborn who rolled in heaven, all the other witnesses, all the other clouds of witnesses that gone before us, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits and the righteousness who have been made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks of something better than Abel's does. You and I do not come to stone, to a box called the Ark of the Covenant, to fire, to fear and trembling and smoke and darkness and fabrics and curtains and a city that will be destroyed by the Romans. You and I, we walk boldly and confidently into the throne of God, Hebrews chapter 4, to a merciful and compassionate high priest that we can touch, speak to, and intimately be face-to-face with because Christ is a better sacrifice that gains us a better access. That's the reality. God has not changed. The sacrifice that gives us access has changed. When people look at the First Testament and see the God of the First Testament is old and evil, vindictive, capricious, that just punishes people and is scary looking. But the God of the New Testament is loving, compassionate, suffer the little children and come unto me. They misunderstand it. What we are not seeing is two different gods. We are seeing two different sacrifices that provide two different accesses. In the First Testament, all you could do was get onto the porch of the family. But in the Second Testament, Christ is a better sacrifice. can take you right into the living room. And intimate board games and all that kind of stuff, kind of relationship and meals. And so this is the reality. Don't see them as two different gods. See them as two different accesses because of two different sacrifices. And that's the difference. That's the difference. He is better, therefore what we have is better. Not different, just deeper, more intimate, greater access. Just like when you're rebellious and disobedient to your parents, you don't have a very good relationship. When you're obedient and spending time with them, you have a good relationship. Same parents. But to one son and to another son, the obedient and the non-obedient, those parents could look like, sound like two different people when they hear them talk. Same God. Just access through His Son 
or access through the law. And if you take access through the law, he seems scary. If you take access through the Son, then he is merciful and compassionate. And that's what you must understand. To a better sacrifice than Abel's. Some of your translations does it say the blood of... The blood's not there. Nowhere in the Greek is the blood of Abel there. They assume that if it's because of the blood of Christ, and then it's better then, it must be the blood of Abel. And so a lot of people here, it doesn't make sense that God is saying that Christ's sacrifice is better than Abel's blood sacrifice. Because one, Abel wasn't a sacrifice. Two, his blood wasn't offered for people, it was taken from him. The most likely the idea here is that in verse 23 it says, And to the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect. That's alluding back to chapter 11. All those spirits of those who are now dead are righteous because of Christ. The reality may be this. Abel is the first person in the entire Bible who offers a sacrifice to God. Now, Adam and Eve, we know they offered sacrifices, but we're never told specifically about their sacrifices. Abel was the first one mentioned in the long string of witnesses in chapter 11. Most likely what he's saying here is Abel is the first record of offering a sacrifice that's going to lead to a long history of all the spirits of righteousness who repetitively offered sacrifices over and over and over again throughout history. And the idea is, why do we have a greater access? Because we have access through the sprinkled blood of Christ's sacrifice, which speaks better than the sacrifice that Abel offered over and over and over again, and all the people throughout history offered over and over and over and over again, that gave them temporary access and a limited access. Does that make sense? That Abel becomes a type for all the other sacrifices that will follow him, repetitiveness and animal emptiness. And Jesus sacrifices his own perfect blood, which speaks better than Abel's sacrifice. Does that make sense? And that's the idea. So, here's the encouragement. The warning is that unlike the First Testament, you have a greater access to God because you have a better sacrifice. But at the same time, if here's a cloud of witnesses who were able to do amazing things because they placed their faith in God with only animal sacrifices, then what greater things can we accomplish when we place our faith in Jesus because we have a better sacrifice? There's a warning and an encouragement to both sides. We have greater access to God, but therefore we're also held to be due greater things from the kingdom of God. With great blessings comes responsibilities. Does this make sense? Verse 25. Take care not to refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less shall we if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will once, I once, I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven too. Now this phrase once more indicates the removal of what is shaken, and that is of what created things, so that what is unshakable may remain. What, what is unshaken may remain. So since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks. And though this 
And through this, let us offer worship pleasing to God in devotion all, for our God is indeed a devouring fire. So now here's the deeper warning. And this is the last final warning that he has for you. Take care not to refuse the one who is speaking. Okay, unlike like the wilderness generation, don't listen and then reject and walk away. He's, he's invoking all this warning passage. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Okay, if the warning was given on earth and they were unable to escape, then how much more will you be able to, unable to escape from the warning from heaven? Remember, once again, if the grace is superior to that of the First Testament, then so is the judgment from that from the First Testament. And this is the thing you must always remember. It's easy to look at the First Testament God and think evil, bad, capricious, or unkind, or unrelenting, or unforgiving, and think New Testament God. But you have to remember, the scene in Revelation of Jesus coming back is kind of scary if you're not a believer. It's kind of scary if you are a believer. And you have to realize that's the same Jesus who's putting little kids on his lap and hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's coming back with a cape dipped in the blood of his enemies and victims. It's not his blood. It's the blood of his enemies. With a sword coming out of his mouth and fire in his eyes and a word of judgment. And he basically says, I'm going to stomp on you like grapes and I'm ticked that nobody will do it with me. So if you reject the pillar of fire and the animal sacrifices and that, and God shook you, Imagine how much more you will be shaked when he reject his son. Greater blessings, greater access, greater hope, but also greater judgment for those who reject it. That's the warning. Then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven too. He's quoting Haggai chapter 2. And Haggai, he's talking to the exiled nation, and he's sending them out, and the idea is God has shook them pretty hard. The Assyrians, if you know anything about it, the Assyrians came in and basically massacred, skinned alive, beheaded, tortured, everybody that you could possibly imagine they executed. The 10%, so to speak, that survived, they had nose rings put into them, attached to chain gangs, and marched for miles. And then Assyria just randomly scattered them all over the place. And so you might be living in Israel, and the next thing you know, you're thrown up in Mesopotamia, way, way, 400 miles in the north. And remember, the most that anybody traveled in the ancient world, if you were in a trader, was like 10 miles in your entire life. And now you're like four or 500 miles away without airplanes, Skype, cars, bicycles, not even skateboards. And everybody you're living with now, People from Egypt, people from the Hittites, you don't speak the same language because everybody you know speaks a different language is somewhere else in the world. Or they're all dead. And the Babylonians come and do it to all those who did not get that done to them. And the best way to think of it is like a snow globe. Syria literally came in and shook the entire world. And a part of it died, and the rest landed somewhere where they never imagined. And they had no hope of getting back home. And so if Israel, for 700 years, kept rejecting the God of the universe without a better sacrifice, and God shook the earth in judgment, how much more will He shake you when you reject His Son? And Haggai says, A day is coming where I will not only shake the earth. The original quotation says, But I will shake the sky, the sea, and the land. 
And that's Judgment Day. Haggai was looking towards the Judgment Day that we're looking forward to. The ultimate, where God Christ is coming back and He's going to shake the planet. If you thought shaking a mountain was bad, if you thought shaking a nation was bad, He's coming back to shake the planet. Now, here, when He quotes it, He does not say land and sea and sky. He just says earth and heaven. But that acts as a mirrorism meaning the heavens, sky, and the earth, and everything in between and in contain. So it's not a misquotation, it's just a, a condensing, a summary. Two things that refer to the whole. Now this phrase, once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, of created things, so that what is unshakable may remain. So the idea is everything that we hold on to in this creation, all the materialism, all the things of the world, the philosophy, the politics, the nations, the materialism, all that will be removed, so that the only thing that's not removed is the unshakable. And what is the only thing that's unshakable? Jesus, heaven, the things that have been secured on a better foundation with a better sacrifice. That's how he ended chapter 10. We have been given a better heavenly sanctuary on a more secure foundation because of a better sacrifice. And so the only thing that's going to remain is the kingdom of God. So let us give thanks, and through this let us offer worship, pleasing to God and devotion, all, for God is indeed a devouring fire. So are you part of the kingdom of God, or are you part of the kingdom of earth? If you're part of the kingdom of earth, and your heart's treasures are here, then you're going to be shook, and nothing will remain. Or you're part of the kingdom of God, and all the frivolous insignificant things that we keep in our pockets is going to all be shaken out of us. And all that's going to be left is those who are refined in the fire of God. Because the fire of God is a devouring fire. And it will either devour you and consume you into hell, or it will surround you and cleanse you and purify you into the presence of God. And that's a theme that First Peter really develops. Who are you going to bow down to? And who are you going to serve? What sacrifice are you going to place your trust in? And the more you see how awesome Christ is, the more passionate you become about introducing people to the better sacrifice. Make sense? That's the awesome. Amazing blessings. But it's also the scary warning for those who do not heed. Now the question is, If you are, and this is for me too, if Christ is your better sacrifice and your access to your true Heavenly Father, then are you going to make the better sacrifice known to those who live in the shakable world? Because that's part of living at peace with people too. Part of living at peace is not just arguing with people. and Part of living at peace is introducing them to peace. Because that's the ultimate peace. You may never have any kind of discord between you and them because you're not a violent, bitter, complaining person. But you will never have the ultimate peace between you and them because you haven't introduced them to the better sacrifice.